Vladimir Putin has launched an attack on Ukraine, starting the first major war in Europe since the Second World War. What more can the United States do to help? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of the Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before I bring in Patty, I want to thank our sponsors, because this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check them out at betterhelp.com slash on topic and get 10% off your first month. I'd also like to thank Magic Mind for supporting my podcast. Magic Mind is the world's first productivity drink that helps you fight off stress and keeps you dialed in, not wired. So go to magicmind.co slash on topic and use the code on topic at the checkout for 20% off. All right, Patty, I got to tell you, this has been really something. It's the first time, I think, since the start of the pandemic where the pandemic is totally off the front page. Everybody is talking about this horrific war, brutal war against Ukraine. And, you know, the images that we're starting to see, look, we we sort of have in our minds uh, how horrific it would be when you see young people in the streets uh, who have died, uh, who, you know, we know that there are so many tragic stories. We're only getting a glimpse of that. Uh, It's just absolutely heartbreaking and infuriating of, of, you know, in our role in this. Uh, and we and we do have a huge role in this because of Trump's leadership and, of course, our role globally. Um, it's just uh, it, it obviously knocks everything else out of the headlines uh, and deserves our full attention. And yet it makes us feel helpless. We can talk about it. But most of us feel like <laughs> it, it's been out of our hands for years. Yeah, I have to say, though, you know, I give credit to the Biden administration because one thing they did that was actually being criticized for a little while is they had intelligence that this was going to happen and they let the entire world know in advance, this is going to happen. Here's our intelligence. Putin's planning to do this so that this way, any pretext like they were, Putin was going to try to pretend that this was somehow Ukraine's fault. Like they had invaded him or done something to Russia. And that has totally been undermined. The entire world knows that Putin just decided to attack, that there's no there's no justification for it, and that this is just an aggressive war. And I do think that that has helped unify the world and unify NATO uh, in a way that I wouldn't have expected a few months ago. Oh, absolutely, because, I mean, that's the, the part that we watched for, for years under Trump was his weakening of NATO and what we now look back and think, you know, this was part, was it part of the plan? Was it uh, some sort of accidental uh, result with, uh, you know, Putin weakening that? But yeah, you're right. When, when uh, the chips are down, I think the United States has done a, a really good job of do, doing the best we can and not just under the circumstances, but doing a lot to mend a lot of that strengthen the the ties that we need to have there going forward in whatever situation arises next really globally yeah i think one thing that i am happy about and proud about is the united states has fortified uh you know the the uh the presence that we have in our nato allies like poland and the baltic states estonia latvia uh, lithuania to make sure that they um, you know, make know that they're secure. Uh, President Biden made clear in his State of the Union that we're going to defend every inch of their soil. I think that's important. And what we're seeing actually is states like Finland and Sweden actually talking about potentially joining NATO really for the first time. And we were getting the Germans and other countries deciding to spend more in defense. I actually think that in some ways this is um, backfired for Vladimir Putin because I think what it's doing is telling everyone else, oh, the Russia could evade you next. And so uh, I think people are 
very determined to make sure there's not a next. Of course, for the Ukrainians, that doesn't that doesn't solve the problem of today. Not at all. And I know that uh, there's you know, there's a lot of fear as to what it means. One, when you see nuclear reactors uh, on fire or being attacked, there's a lot of concern there, both for the people who are there, for the environment, and also the implications of what else uh, could happen next. And look, you know, there is, you know, I have people tell me, oh, you know, he's not going to launch any any nuclear arms. And I, and I get that sort of like, you know, wanting to be rational or having uh, operating from that place, but it only takes one madman to have their finger on the button, Renato. That's one of the things that it, it doesn't matter what has happened before. If if we have these people, these men who believe that they have they have this sort of uh, uh, mission, whether it's from God or for the you know for the Russian future, uh, you know who knows what happens in those moments of screw it, I'm just going to push the button. That's what some people like me, I think, our brains go there sometimes. I don't know about you. Well, I do think. And there's an element here where Putin isn't acting completely rationally. I mean, there's it's certainly the case that Putin thinks that, you know, he wants to have dominance in that area of the world. He wants to recreate the Soviet empire, believes that that's in Russia's interest and is going to do what he you know, what he can to throw his weight around. I have to say that he's gotten himself into a bit of a pickle here because He's essentially saying, I mean, he's got two options, right? I mean, either he brutally defeats Ukraine, you know, kills their president, who everyone's obviously uh, rallied behind, you know, becomes sort of a pariah in the eyes of the world. That's one option. The other option is they come up with some sort of, you know, face-saving deal and pull out, but then there he's going to look like he lost, right? So, you know, I think he's gotten himself into a bad situation, and I think when— People who are aggressive dictator types get themselves into a a lose-lose situation. That's when they can do things that are unpredictable. I mean, he has been, Putin has been saying things like, you know, the the nuclear, you know, he's increased the readiness of their nuclear arsenal. He's mentioned that even supplying arms to Ukraine now means that you're involved in the war. Essentially, you know, we've been, I think, taking a careful stance of not getting involved directly but of arming ukrainians and you know sanctions and so forth and he's basically trying to say well you're involved anyway i mean which essentially puts us in a spot where you know we don't know what this guy's going to do right and look you know this is something that has popped up uh, at least on, on our radar of people who like maybe aren't paying attention to international relations and stories and you know that I've been banging this drum for since it happened was that Ukraine memo when Trump wanted to withhold support for Ukraine because they wanted dirt on Hunter Biden. And like that's something that people I've watched over uh, over the weekend, including friends of yours who are like someone needs to do a debrief on what happened on that first impeachment. Uh, and like as much as people don't want to go backwards, like this is a result of not paying attention at the time or addressing it. And uh, <laughs> it's just maddening. Uh, there's so many things. Yeah, I have to say, you know, one thing people forget is that Trump did essentially extort the pre- the president of Ukraine, President yes. Zelensky, the same guy that everyone's rallying behind now, yes. withholding, saying we're going to withhold these javelin missiles that they needed for defense, unless he helped him like investigate. Biden's son of all things, right? <clears throat> Which is crazy. Uh and, and of course, we're now hearing from John Bolton who didn't speak up at the time, but is telling us that Trump's plan was to withdraw from NATO, which is crazy. Bolton says he held him back, but he was going to do it during the second term. And just so everyone understands, NATO is an organization that was founded in the 40s after World War II by the United States and other countries to defend against the Soviet Union, and it has kept peace in Europe since that time. And we have not had a European war in part because NATO has a doctrine where essentially if you attack any of us, you attack all of us. And so no one's ever going to attack uh, Western or Central Europe as a result. Yeah, it is. Uh, isn't that great? exactly right? As far as pulling out of NATO, that's that sounds like that was a plan. And, and by the way, you mentioned that John Bolton didn't say anything at the time. I mean, we could say that of everyone who was working in Trump's inner circle. We're seeing with the William Barr book and all these, you know, I mean, like the, <laughs> the reporter who uh, wanted to save it, they all wanted to save it for their book. They didn't want to save Americans. They didn't want to save people. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, Barr, of course, now he's suddenly saying how dangerous Trump was, yeah. crazy, and you know, all of his claims about voter fraud were BS. And of course, even on the day he resigned, Barr was like, oh, congratulations on all your successes, Mr. President, and saluting him, right? And even yeah. now won't say he wouldn't vote for Trump again. I mean, these guys are yeah a little crazy. And I, I just wonder the situation that we're in in the world, you know, how much of that was due to Donald Trump. In other words, I think Putin has definitely gotten the, the sense that the United States is divided, that many uh, people support him. I mean, he's you can watch in our media a lot of conservatives. Uh, I hate that word conservative because these guys aren't conservative. It's right wingers, I guess, maybe like Tucker Carlson and so forth, praising Vladimir Putin, cheering on Vladimir Putin. Um, you know, if you if you hear that sort of thing, it's easy to think that maybe the United States wouldn't uh, help Ukraine at all. Maybe there wouldn't be sanctions and so on. Yeah. A, a, a totally different uh, situation. Look, and it's that we talk about this situation in particular, but there's so many others like it, including the pandemic, right? Dismantling so many of the things that have been built over for decades: our relationship in NATO, our uh, our leadership in the world, our medical teams and researchers around the world who had a playbook for the pandemic. These are all related, as far as the dismantling of. I mean, this, isn't this what Steve Bannon wanted? Was the chaos and start from scratch and uh, you know, the anarchy kind of idea. And they did a pretty good job of, and I laugh nervously because if you think about it, it's absolutely horrifying. Absolutely. They just wanted to sort of blow it up and we'll see what happens. And of course, this is what you see happens when you blow things up. And we obviously we've had a, we had a global pandemic. Now we've got a major war. Uh, people are suffering and, you know, it, uh, to me, the issue is, look, we've had a number of wars over the last you know, 20, 30 years, some of which, of course, the United States has started. But I think what is unique here uh, is the way in which this threatens instability and could re- lead to a wider conflict and more conflicts going forward. That's that's what I think is interesting here uh, and important for people to understand is that uh, particularly in Europe, there has been a stability uh, where there's been an understanding that, uh, you know, invading these other countries is not going to be good in the long run. And Vladimir Putin is really changing that status quo. He had already invaded Ukraine before, uh, taken the Crimea. He had already supported these separatists in the east. Now uh, we're in a situation where, you know, I, I have to say, Patty, I'm surprised to be hearing members of Congress suggesting things that would literally send our troops in to attack Russians. I mean, I, that I didn't, didn't expect uh, people to, to have that view. Right. And that's, you know, that's another fear that obviously I look, I have an 18 year old son. Um, There's a fear that people have been calling into my radio show on WCPT about is that, you know, are we going to send in troops? And, uh, and again, the same sort of folks who say, don't worry about nuclear arms, tell us not to worry about sending in troops. We're there's there's everything to worry about. I'm sorry, folks, that we are dealing with people both in office now and those who've led us to this who are not operating uh, with logic, with reason, with empathy for human beings. I mean, the whole idea that he's going in on Putin's uh, whole mission statement is that we're going to eradicate the Nazis in Ukraine. And I've had for now, I've had people call my show with those talking points. Really? That. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like That's crazy because the president of Ukraine's Jewish. I know it doesn't matter to them. They have bought these lies hook, line and sinker. And uh, and, and there are people here who believe that, too. So, I mean, again, uh, I, I don't I don't doubt anything anymore. I you know what I thought that we would have a president who didn't care that hundreds of thousands of people were dying from a virus and just hope that they died in Democratic cities. Yeah, I don't I, I don't uh, think anything's off the table. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's crazy. I, I do want to bring in our guest uh, to talk more about this, somebody who knows a heck of a lot about Russia and Ukraine. But before I do, I want to talk a little bit about Magic Mind is our new 
sponsor here. I've got to tell you about Magic Mind. It is a shot that you take. It includes match this matcha. It includes all these other natural ingredients uh, that give you energy, get your mind working, gives you uh, a jolt in the morning when I take it with my coffee. So we're teaming up with Magic Mind, and they are offering you 20% off your order when you go to magicmind.co slash on topic and use on topic at checkout. I got to tell you guys, I'm very much into efficiency. I'm always juggling dozens of things between my law practice and uh, doing this stuff and trying to get involved as an activist and everything else that I've got at my family. I'm trying to juggle and magic mind has become part of my morning routine and it works. It helps you stay focused. It helps you keep productive when you got a lot of things thrown at you and it's all natural. Uh, I don't really know everything that's in it or how it works, but there's a reason why it's become so popular uh, it's got 12 functional ingredients. It has that matcha that I really love the, t- the taste of. It's got these like neotropics that make you focus, adaptogens, help you fight off stress. And it's really, I think, just made for somebody who's juggling a lot of different things and wearing different hats. So it's perfect for me. And it's great if you need an energy boost and you want to focus throughout the day. So with their money back guarantee, any first purchase will be refunded. No questions asked if it doesn't meet your expectations. So go to magicmind.co slash on topic and use the code on topic at checkout for 20% off. All right, I'm going to uh, introduce our guest now. Our guest is Olga Lautman. Uh, She is a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis. Uh, She is an expert on Russian and Ukrainian uh, government entities, global operations, and organized crime. Um, and she has, you know, been somebody who's focused on identifying individuals and assets uh, that are offshore uh, related to Russian and Ukrainian um, uh, different uh, organizations. She's also monitors their internal politics, overseas intelligence operations, disinformation campaigns, uh, and has a lot of networks with uh, folks that are in Russia and Ukraine. She's also the co-host of the Kremlin File podcast series. Uh, so just uh, somebody who is a really, I think, a perfect guest for this topic. I'm going to bring her in in one minute. But I also want to I also have to talk to you about BetterHelp because today's podcast is also brought to you by BetterHelp, bringing you professional online counseling whenever you need it most. We go to the gym, we take vitamins, we get annual checkups from our doctor to make sure our physical body is healthy. We need to take care of our mental health, too. You know, going to therapy is the same sort of thing. Mental health care is health care. Routine maintenance for your mental and emotional wellness prevents even bigger issues down the road. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anybody on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Why invest in everything else and not on your mind? So this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and on-topic listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash on-topic. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash on-topic. All right, Patty, I'm going to bring in Olga Lautman. I think this is going to be a great conversation. Lots to talk about regarding this uh, brutal assault by Russia in Ukraine. Welcome to the podcast, Olga. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, and thank you so much for covering this. Well, it's so important. This This is an event that I think it obviously has profound consequences for the Ukrainian people. But it also, I think, has consequences for our world, for the stability of our world, the potential uh, future of Europe and, I think, of the United States. Because I think, uh, obviously, particularly with the NATO alliance, the future of the United States is tied together with the future of Europe. Can you help us understand? I think a lot of listeners, I think, are struggling to understand why why Putin felt compelled to start this war. Can you help us understand what is, as best you can, make sense of the, of any kind of aggressive war? What 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 is compelled him to do this? Well, to put it in a broader context, um, Putin invaded Ukraine in 2014. Um, it has been a military strategy for him to take Belarus, which he 
was successfully annexed last year because now, you know, Belarus, uh, their independence is pretty much gone and they are fully reliant on Russia. So, and on top of it, he expanded his territory for military purposes and potentially his army. Although I've heard that um, some commanders inside the Belarusian army are refusing to go attack Ukraine and are quitting and then leaving the country. Um, His next, after Belarus, his next strategy was Ukraine. Um, And then from there, he continues to move on to Moldova. Um, they've always had a military strategy of taking the Sowaki Corridor, which would connect Kaliningrad to Belarus. And that puts, of course, the Baltics into, you know, at high risk. Yeah, it seemed to me that Putin made a decision that reconstituting as much as of the former Soviet Union as he could was in Russia's interest. And he calculated that the West was either divided or was not willing to take action or cared about this area of the world less than him. And so that he, so he could essentially do what he wanted. And I wonder if our uh, our you know, lack of aggressive action in face of the invasion of Crimea and uh, his support of the separatists in uh, the Donbass uh, may have led him to that uh, conclusion. Absolutely. And to touch on to your point, Putin is going to be 70 years old this year. He's been in power over 20 years. He has absolutely nothing to show for his role. I mean, he is the richest man in the world, but on paper, you know, to the Russians, he is on a state salary and obviously doesn't flaunt it. If anything, he hides it via uh, very complicated networks and his oligarchs. So it is very important for a Russian leader or even a Soviet leader, which he has a Soviet mentality, to leave behind a legacy. So reinstating territorial loss after the Soviet Union is absolutely one of his main priorities. Um, I do think, however, I mean, he invaded Georgia in 2008. He invaded Crimea in 2014 and annexed. He committed atrocities, bombing hospitals, using chemical weapons in Syria um, over the past several years, committed several assassinations using, you know, uh, chemical weapons on foreign soil. And he's never been held accountable. And this is why I say even for, you know, people in America, we have to hold our leaders accountable because if you don't, this is what happens. And because he was never fully held accountable, he had way too many people in Europe and in U.S., you know, that he had influence over. This is why we're here. He got emboldened and each time he pushed, you know, the needle crossed the line to the point. Now we are watching World War II scenes. We are watching the biggest humanitarian crisis um, in Europe since World War II. We are watching cities being decimated. I mean, this is a sovereign country. He just walked into the sovereign country and now is decimating cities, murdering civilians. I mean, their targets are civilians, as we saw today with the humanitarian corridor that they temporarily um, said they were going to instate and then Russia went back on its word. It was mined. So, I mean, these are civilians who are cut off from electric, gas, um, heat. It's freezing there. They have no medicine, no food. And Mariupol has been surrounded by Russian troops already for almost a week. And in order to get them out, they had to, you know, go through this corridor and it was mined, according to the Red Cross. So, I mean, this, I, we're just watching pure evil. And, you know, we said after World War II, never again. And here we are watching the same exact thing happen. Well, you know, one thing that has kept the peace in Europe since the Second World War has been NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which the United States is part of, was a founding member of. I think it was back in 1948, I think it, it started. And it's an organization of, when it's founded, mostly Western European states in the United States. But, of course, it has expanded 
after the fall of the Soviet Union to, to Soviet Union to include many Central and Eastern European countries. You know, not only uh, countries like Poland, for example, but also you mentioned the Baltic states. Uh, that's Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, and, and it's in other countries, in, including, for example, I, you know, I believe Montenegro was the least uh, latest addition to NATO. So we've got a whole slew of countries that are part of NATO. And that organization has, in, in, as part of the Atlantic Charter, uh, uh, Article 5, which says that an attack on one is an attack on all. Now, NATO has, I think, in many ways kept peace in Europe, but in, in you know there's been um, a lot of discussion about potentially Putin attacking Ukraine because he was concerned that if he didn't attack now, that Ukraine in the future might have protection from NATO or might be part of NATO. What is what's your take on that? That is classic Russia using throwing a narrative out in order to divert attention from what is really happening. So Russia began this military operation um, in Ukraine last February. One year ago, they've been making preparations and went through several stages. They were moving military equipment last fall. And then the propaganda phase happened in, in the summer with Putin's essay to Ukrainians that basically they are one people and that the country is not sovereign or you know shouldn't exist. Um, but then when it came to uh, the closer we came to Russia, you know, escalating this operation to the point that they were preparing assault on Ukraine over the uh, late fall, Russia needed a narrative. And of course, they decided to say NATO is, you know, the danger. This is why they're doing it. First of all, if you look back, Ukraine has been attempting to join NATO. They haven't even received a roadmap. I mean, by the time that they would potentially join, Putin's not even going to be on this planet. Because, I mean, they've been, you know, for over a decade, they've been attempting to just obtain a roadmap of how to join. Number two, no, no factors changed. We talked about the Baltics that happened in the 2000s. Um, pretty much all the countries who have entered NATO, you know, this has happened decades ago. So no, there was absolutely no shift in dynamics for Russia to suddenly get scared. Third of all, Russia, NATO has never, ever, ever shown any aggression towards Russia. They've never even stepped one inch on Russian soil. Russia, however, is the one who invaded both of their neighbors, Georgia in 2008, Ukraine, um, in 2014, and the war's been carrying on since. Then we, Russia conducted the biggest cyber attack on Estonia in 2007. So the one who is the aggressor has been Russia. So if anything, NATO should be worried about them. And they have been very essential to keeping the peace because Russia, for the most part, hasn't engaged over these decades because of this, you know, Article 5 and and one country is uh, 30 countries and 30 is one and they will protect each other. So, I mean, that is just classic Russia changing the narrative in order to fit their narrative and to model the truth. Because while we were all discussing NATO, well, not I, but while our media was discussing this NATO narrative in November and December, Russia at the same time was uh, hurrying up, moving in their military equipment more, putting everything in, setting up the blood banks, and doing everything for an attack. So, uh, you know, clearly, even with the negotiations, they never came into negotiations in good faith. That was just to buy time while they finished their last preparations for this assault on Ukraine. Yeah, in fact, uh, I think there have been some reports that there was communications between Russia and China where China asked Russia to wait until after the Olympics to attack. I mean, that gives you a sense of how voluntary this was by the Russians. I, I really don't think any of our listeners are going to take seriously the idea that, you know, France, the UK, uh, you know, uh, Germany, Italy were going mount, gonna, planning to mount an attack on Russia. I mean, I think that may convince people who are uh, who are receiving disinformation from the Russian regime. But uh, I don't think that's the case. You know, I I, I do think, it, you know, it, it, it was there was some, you know, there was this discussion for a while, like, oh, could there be a negotiated 
you know, a settlement beforehand where it's like, okay, Ukraine stays neutral or something, but and Russia leaves them alone. But it it really seemed to me that Putin was determined to go to war. He was moved all these troops there. They had these supplies. It, it seemed like they were that they thought this this war was going to be a cakewalk, sort of like when they stormed into Crimea. They their attack on Crimea, you know, happened fairly quickly. And because it was limited there, they they were able to pull that off without having a long and bitter struggle. But this, it seems to me the difference here is this is really going at the existence of the Ukrainian state, right? They're basically saying they're going to attack Kiev, Kharkov, all of the major population centers of Ukraine, are basically saying essentially that they plan to annex, as you put it, to basically take over the entire country. So it's like if the United States decided one day it was going to invade Canada. Something like that. Exactly. Exactly. And to your point on uh, that, you know, on your earlier question where um, you asked about NATO, I mean, clearly Russia even didn't, you know, use NATO as an excuse to invade Ukraine. They said they were going to go in and denazify and demilitarize Ukraine. So basically, they want to erase all Ukrainians, Ukrainian heritage. And we see now... Russia is not conducting, you know, special operations. They are making sure that every single building, block by block, town by town, is just gone. And this is what you see. You see towns that, you know, there are no military targets inside, nothing that, you know, would interest Russia, but they are completely decimating these towns. I mean, it's heartbreaking. I mean, you know, I saw a village off of Kharkiv yesterday completely gone. There's absolutely nothing near that village. So they are solely going for Ukrainians. They're shooting children. They're shooting people who are trying to escape. So, I mean, you see, and this is what, you know, Russia has been claiming. They want to denazify Ukraine. So in their uh, twisted version is basically that they want to eliminate Ukrainian people because they don't believe that Ukrainian people exist and Ukraine has a right to exist. Yeah, this denazification narrative, I mean, it, does, it hasn't really uh, convinced anybody else in the world, particularly given that the Ukrainian president is Jewish. But I think I, the way I view that is that was a, a method by which Putin could uh, deceive his population, his own population, because, of course, there's a lot of hatred for the Nazis, given that tens of millions of Russian citizens died during the Second World War because of an attack by the by the by Nazi Germany. That's my assumption of what where this narrative came from. Can you help us understand that a little bit? Yeah, actually, on the day before he uh, launched this assault, they played World War Two movies all day of the Soviets defeating Nazis. So, I mean, they were preparing um you know, the narrative, I, I mean, it was going forward. They were talking about Ukrainians committing genocide. And like for two weeks prior to invasion, the narrative completely switched because I follow Russian media and it completely switched to now suddenly Ukrainians are committing genocide. And then up to that day, they, you know, played World War II movies. And I mean, that's, Honestly, why they stick to that is because that is the only thing that Russia actually has accomplished since, you know, over the past century. I mean, to this day, like I feel like every other month there's a Soviet holiday celebrating World War II. It's constantly in their news. Um, And I think it is so strong in the population. And again, it affects the older population because the younger population, you know, doesn't remember and and even have spoken out against the narrative because um, at one point a few years ago, Putin had uh, signed a decree criminalizing um, uh, reporting the truth that Stalin and Hitler, you know, had some kind of agreements. So you know, they are rewriting their own history there. And anyone who mentions the truth or shows even a photograph of of, uh, Stalin and Hitler meeting, then, you know, you can get arrested up to 10 years in jail for that. Um, So I think it's just because that's such a very, like, this is something that they drive into the populace there. And that's a 
you know, very strong narrative. They have so many holidays surrounding World War II and celebrating World War II heroes that I think that's the reason that they used it. And I mean, anyone on the outside world will see it. Ukrainians are minding their business. There's absolutely no Nazis in Ukraine. I mean, they're trying to, you know, they're a democracy. They're trying to clean out their corruption and move forward, you know, towards Western values, towards Europe, um, eventually join NATO. Again, that will take, you know, over at least over a decade. Maybe now after this, it'll be quicker. But prior to this, it would have been definitely not anytime soon because Germany and France have always come and blocked that, even the roadmap. So, um, you know, it was just, it was another pretext. And there were several. I mean, they at the same time were laying the groundwork work that U.S. mercenaries had delivered chemical weapons and were preparing to attack Russians. I mean, there were so many narratives feeding in, but this is the one that they chose to go, you know, uh, out with, with the West as justification for going in. You know, uh, Olga, a lot of people want to know as much as they can, right? And obviously we're getting oversaturated watching the same thing over and over again, but people do want to figure out what's trustworthy because Russia has obviously cracked down on international media. Do you have recommendations for maybe an underground platform or some some other platform that is used within Russia to get uncensored info out? Um, there's a little chance of serious uprisings from within without current information as is what people are worried about too. Right now they're scrambling to set something up. I've talked to people inside Russia and, you know, right now they just closed off everything, Facebook, Twitter, they banned um, the last two independent media outlets. They um, are banning pretty much anything. And again, Putin signed a decree that even if you share a photo of, what's happening you can go to jail for up to 15 years you can't even say the word war because they're calling it a special operation and um so right now they they themselves are scrambling to kind of set something up that's a little bit more to get out to the west i mean you have the opposition people i would say navalny and um Mikhail Khodorkovsky, his center. Those are two good resources because they have established networks inside of Russia, um, the opposition networks, and they're still able to get some kind of information and then report it out to the West. Can you help us understand what the average Russian citizen is told or understands about what is going on in Ukraine right now? Oh, it's unbelievable. Um, so, and actually what I'm raising the alarm about. So basically, um, it began with, um, Ukrainians were committing genocide. Ukrainians are bombing buildings indiscriminately. Basically everything that you see Russia is doing, this is, they're flipping it back and saying that this is Ukrainians doing. Luckily, I still have access to Russian media, media, you know, even though they can't see us, we could still see in there. Um, they started a new narrative, which, you know, is very worrying now that Ukrainian military is preparing to, uh, use a dirty bomb inside of Ukraine, um, that they, then yesterday, the defense ministry said that they're preparing to, uh, rig, that they have rigged a nuclear facility in Kharkiv and that, um, they at any moment can set it off. So, I mean, if you read, uh, you know, Russian media, they are being fed basically that Ukrainians are just walking around massacring everyone in their country, which is completely absurd. It's their country. I mean, they're not going to want to nuke their country. Um, uh, certainly, you see now with 200,000 troops inside their country, you know, they're, they're not going to start this kind of thing. And um, and that's it. So basically everything you're seeing on CNN that we see Russia is doing, flip it back and Russia is accusing all of those atrocities on uh, Ukrainians. The Ukrainians are going house by house, uh, killing people, bombing buildings, killing citizens and whatnot. So it's, it's they're projecting basically. Yeah, it's it's been interesting. One thing that I have noticed there's a, this new symbolism of the Z 
Um, and of course, we just had an athlete, a Russian athlete, that was penalized for use, wearing the Z, which is shown is basically a way for Russian citizens to show support for this invasion of Ukraine. Uh, I've seen these sort of almost they look like fascist videos yeah. coming out of Russia of a lot of young people wearing the Z symbol and uh, all sort of talking and yelling and making motions in unison. Help us understand these images and videos that we're seeing out of Russia. Yeah, well, fascist video, they actually have several of these twice a year, it happens. And like over the past few years, there have been several of these, you know, and it's normally, I don't know how much they're doing it voluntarily, because um, inside of Russia, like, you know, even if you work at a job, and your boss tells you, you have to go and perform something for the state, you have no choice. So, I mean, I don't know if they're doing it willingly, if they're not doing it willingly, although there's definitely a, a good enough population who would support the Kremlin. But I, this is just, I mean, it's, it's creepy. It's scary because this just shows you how brainwashed the youth is. And they have a brainwashing youth program that begins, it's the Nashi movement they had, where they begin brainwashing, you know, younger people to be nationalist and, and basically to hate the West, to hate, you know, everything and just be loyal to the motherland and loyal to the Kremlin. And I mean, they've even brought that to school. My parents are from the Soviet Union. I mean, they went to school and this is like, from morning to night, they were brainwashed between state radios, you know, school um, of, of everything is about the motherland. You must sacrifice your life for the motherland. And and that's it. And, and this is what Putin has done. And now with this closed space where he closed the information space, it is going to be more dangerous. I mean, the younger people will, I'm sure, find the workaround to, to get the information in. But for the older people, you know, it's going to be a problem. So what do you what do you think the end game here is for Russia? In other words, at this stage of the game, what do you think that what do what is your understanding of what they think that they're going to be able to accomplish here? Do you you still think from that they believe that the complete elimination of the Ukrainian state is on the table? Well, I mean, as far as this military operation, I don't know who advised Putin But for some reason, you know, they thought that they were going to walk into Ukraine and just capture it within days. We clearly see that the Russian military is not good. It's depleted. The morale is low. Ukrainians, you know, we're on, what, day 12 today. Ukrainians are still fighting back. Russia hasn't made any, um, you know, uh, major city captures. They're surrounding cities, but they haven't been able to capture a city. Even if they manage to capture cities, they're never going to hold these cities because the one thing I try to explain to people, Ukrainians will fight, whether it's with weapons from the West or a broomstick, they will fight for their land. I mean, this goes back to, you know, Stalin, where he, Stalin, um, uh, during Holodomor, where he assassinated like uh, millions of Ukrainians from the manufactured famine. So there is this, you know, unity amongst Ukrainians and this pride and this determination. This is their land and they will do everything they can to protect their land. As far as Russia, you see the longer this campaign goes on, the more dangerous they're getting. Whereas before the first few days when they thought they were going to you know, be able to capture cities quickly. Um, They were a little bit more gentle, uh, targeting some military targets. But now you just see they are like every single day that Ukrainians fight back and hold them back. Every day we're going to see just get deadlier and deadlier and deadlier because now you're going to see the true operations of Russia. And this is what they've done in Syria. I mean, they destroyed cities. They used chemical weapons on on women and children in cities. So I fear that, I mean, before we see anything like, you know, turning, that Russia will just get much, much more 
dangerous inside of Ukraine. Um, their attacks are going to be more brutal, and we're going to see a lot more casualties. Uh, Olga, so many people want to know what they can do to support Ukrainians. They want to know if they can send money. Are there reliable organizations that you would recommend? What are ways in which people can show their support and not just show their support, but give support? Well, there's several things. The first thing that is free is to push back on any narratives and to promote um, anything that you see, any war crimes, because we need to make sure that Putin is held accountable for every single war crime that he commits inside of Ukraine. So the first thing is to keep Ukraine in the news, to keep Ukraine, you know, the focus, because the biggest fear right now that Ukrainians have is that right now they are in the news and then in a few weeks they won't be and then, you know, people will just forget while they're going to continue getting slaughtered. Um, the second, um, there is uh, uh, the Ukrainian bank, their central bank. They set up a special fund uh, for donations. And um, I'm actually going to put together a list and I'll put it onto my page. But um, I know in Germany, there are several uh, organizations who are collecting money for all the Ukrainians fleeing into Germany, in Poland, the same, and then obviously inside of uh, Ukraine. So I'll put together like a little resource of several reliable organizations where they can uh, donate. Great. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. Now, you know, one thing that I think folks don't understand, you talked a little bit about this, the famine. I think this is very important, uh, historical uh, moment. You know, we talk about there's a lot of atrocities that are discussed in history. I think that this particular atrocity has not received enough attention. But this is essentially a time where Ukraine, in many ways, is a breadbasket for the Soviet Union, a uh, place where there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, crops are grown, and basically over a multi-year period of time, uh, Stalin took all of the food and grain and so forth out of Ukraine and basically starved millions of Ukrainians to death. It was uh, it was a famine, but it was actually not caused, but people call it a famine, but it wasn't caused by anything natural. It was essentially a mass starvation uh, of Ukrainians by a, a, a state that was controlled by Russia. I have to think that that plays into the resistance that the Ukrainians have had towards this invasion. Absolutely. I mean, like I said, you know, this, uh, besides, you know, I mean, it's just insane in, that in 2022, a country can just decide I want this country and walk in and take it and, you know, attempt to take it and just destroy it and do whatnot. But there is a lot of history between the two countries, you know, and I mean, it goes back almost a century and, a lot of people lost uh, family or at least everyone. I don't know one Ukrainian family who doesn't, you know, have someone who died under Holodomor. And then from there, you had the Soviet Union recently. Um, well, not that recently, but several years ago, Ukraine um, opened up the KGB files. Um, and the KGB files were devastating. They were painful because it just showed how horrific the Soviet regime was and how the KGB, which were, you know, like state police there, had forced families to turn in families or go against families. And I mean, it was probably one of the most heartbreaking moments looking through these files that are hopefully will be maintained. Um, because uh, they're in Kiev and I hope they'll be preserved. I mean, it's something that needs to be known, but this was done by the Soviet regime. And I mean, there's just a lot of pain between the countries um, under the Soviet Union. And now, you know, there's determination. Ukrainians will not be erased. You know, they will fight for their land. They have their own heritage. They have, are their own people. They have their own culture. Um, despite what Putin thinks that, you know, Russia created Ukraine, that's absolutely an inaccurate fact. And, you know, even the language, I mean, the language is, you know, not that close to Russian, you know? So, I mean, it's, it's, Putin is trying to erase everything about Ukraine, the language, you know, their, their heritage, their history, culture, I mean, he's not going to be successful because Ukrainians are determined and 
We'll make sure that this is all preserved and we'll make sure to fight for their land. And one more point I want to make, and this is when I got involved, you know, with um, here in U.S. because I saw what Russia was doing in 2015, uh, attacking our elections. So I got very vocal because it reminded me of everything that happened in Ukraine, all the same tactics of disinformation, division campaigns, um, the cyber attacks, hacking of emails. So I got very alarmed, and that's actually what made me become very, very vocal in U.S. Um, so then um, I, you know, had said that uh, Ukrainians, like, you know, are very, very tough. And I told people here, I'm like, look, you need to look to Ukrainians because Putin had managed to put, you know, Yanukovych, who was the former president, who was working for Russia, um, in order to sabotage Ukraine from within. And this was my biggest fear because then we had Trump, who was doing the same exact thing, imploding the country from within. And Ukrainians came out and you know, basically made him flee. They came out in the worst temperature, millions standing night after night after night, resisting until, you know, this this uh, former president who's being tried for treason um, and lives in Russia right now under Russian state security services until he, um, you know, fled. And that's it. And Ukrainians are not going to tolerate not a leader who's working for Russia. They're not going to tolerate anything that is against their interest. And it's about the people. And, you know, you'll never see in Ukraine, like, you know, where now it is with the leader, with Zelensky. But prior to this, he was polling at like 20-something percent. Because in Ukraine, it's about the people. The people are what make the country. They don't look to a leader. They will, you know, allow the leader to come in if they see he's go- taking the country down the wrong path. Immediately they unite and try to correct that course. You know, you mentioned uh, you mentioned Trump, and uh, this is something Patty and I talked about earlier. A lot of Americans don't remember that the first impeachment of Trump was in was related to his his attempt to essentially extort President Zelensky, the same person who a lot of ever, a lot of people are rallying around now. But he was essentially being extorted by Trump, who, who basically said that if Ukraine wanted javelin missiles that, you know, to defend their country, uh, that he would have to help uh, investigate uh, President Biden's uh, son. Uh, you know, can you help us understand how, you know, Trump and his uh, I, I, I don't know if I think I'm dignifying it too much by calling it foreign policy, but I would say hit the messaging that he sent pro-Russian messaging from Trump had an impact in in uh, fomenting this uh, crisis that we have now? It definitely had an impact because, number one, where Putin used uh, Russian operatives to attack our 2016 election, he shifted tactics for 2020 by using his operatives inside of Ukraine. Trump going to uh, the Ukrainian president, who at the time, you know, was still Russia. I mean, there were several issues between Russia and Ukraine because besides the fact that Russia's been conducting war there, but we had an attack on um, the vessels in the Sea of Azov in 2018, I believe, and Russians took Ukrainian sailors hostage. So, I mean, there were active attacks. And what Russia's goal has always been is to break the relationship between Ukraine and United States and Ukraine and Europe. So here, I mean, uh, they, it wasn't even a foreign policy, it was pure criminal extortion. He wanted the president of Ukraine to basically put down the country, commit a crime by making up some kind of investigation in order to, you know, uh, appease Trump so he can use it against his opponents. I mean, this does not happen in democracies. This is like banana republic Russia stuff. I mean, Russia is the one who uh, their countries run like this, where you you make fake investigations up, jail people, seize their assets, and, and that's it. You The evidence is fabricated. Sometimes they're not even bother presenting evidence. And here, this is what Trump did. I mean, you have a country who has a neighbor who is at war with them. And Trump 
sent his goons, I mean, I wouldn't even call them lawyers, I don't know what they were, uh, to sit there and work with Russian intelligence operatives in Ukraine to force the head of state of Ukraine to create a fabricated case so Trump can then take it here and, I, I, I don't know, attempt to smear Joe Biden, prosecute Joe Biden. I don't know what his intentions were. Definitely to smear him. But I mean, you know, with Trump, like I say, just like with Putin, what he says, you believe him. And he said he wanted to have Biden prosecuted. So, I mean, it, it, it really and it's really outrageous that we are now two years almost two years, well, a year, one year after Trump and still no one has been prosecuted. Not for that, not for, you know, the January 6th um, attack on our capital. And that's why I say it is so important to hold people accountable because Putin would have never been this strong and be able to commit these atrocities if he was held accountable years ago when he was weaker. And same thing, you know, we have plenty of people here who have clearly broken the law and, you know, tried to steal an election, have, you know, uh, uh, hey, quote, uh, tried to extort countries to, to like, uh, provide evidence for them that didn't exist. And at the, all of this in the center was that um, Trump was withholding javelins, the javelins that are now saving Ukrainians. You know, so this is what was being withheld, weapons that Ukraine desperately needs in order to fend off Russian attack. So uh, one one thing I am curious about, how effective do you think the actions of the United States has been uh, in providing assistance to Ukraine? I think they should have stepped it up earlier because I personally have been documenting this and monitoring, you know, this this assault since last February and warning that this is where it was coming. And I think that they should have stepped up the weapons. I think now they need to do everything they can to get as many weapons as possible before Russia bombs the roads and airfields that are left, you know, in order to get the weapons in. And, um, you know, I am very impressed with the Biden team for allowing his intelligence to release information ahead of time, even though it didn't stop an attack on Putin. I mean, an attack by Putin on Ukraine. Um, It was helpful because it was the first time Russia's always used to controlling the narrative and they own the information or disinformation space. This is the first time that they were thrown off by this tactic because we were getting information, putting it out to the public and basically disrupting their narrative, you know, week after week, sometimes every few days. So I think that was extremely helpful. And I hope our intelligence agencies go forward with that. Um, But as far as anything else right now, all we could do is provide them as quickly as possible, all the assistance we can into Ukraine before Russia bombs the airfields and closes the routes and um, and that's it, you know. Yeah, I think that makes sense. There's been a lot of people calling for, I think, even more than that, I think. Uh, but I think that would be a good step. Uh, Olga, wh- one thing I, I want to make sure I ask you before you go is, you know, I'm sure that some of our listeners want to hear more from you. Can you tell us if our listeners are like, wow, I, I want to hear more about more from Olga. Where can they where can they listen to you and, and read uh, read more about you and that sort of thing? So I um, have a podcast, Kremlin File, and um, you can see the visit the website at kremlinfile.com. Um, that podcast basically covers everything Russia going back to from the collapse of the Soviet Union to the rise of Putin to their Russian intelligence agencies and all the attacks that they have in their hybrid warfare toolkit. So, I mean, it is a very comprehensive overview of tactics, methods, you know, with all the best experts um, in the field. Um, I also am a senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, and I have a link there with all my writing. And I'm on Twitter. 
Wow. Well, thank you, Olga. Thank you for joining us. I, I learned a lot from you, and I, I hope our listeners got some important context from you about Russia and this this uh, brutal war in Ukraine. Thank you. I wish I was talking to you on a happier topic, but uh, this is a, definitely an important one that I want to make sure everyone understands. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you, because people need to understand. People need to, uh, you know, share to be concerned and and thank you to everyone for for caring so much about Ukraine and for making sure that there's a lot of focus on this. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 